0: That story moves, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like kind of in the blink of an eye, we go from these cries of an abused slave girl to her liberation from an oppressive spirit, to public and political retribution for Paul and Silas, their imprisonment, and then to this extraordinary demolition of the jail and the salvation of the jailer. All of this in 18 verses, no less, the story moves. I get the sense that that is a part of its message. The Spirit is on the move, and it's actively working. Plus, it's very, very powerful. When we join it, even like Paul, who does so unwillingly, moved only by the unceasing and super annoying cries of this persistent slave girl, when we join the Spirit amazing and remarkable things can happen well beyond what we could possibly imagine or bring about by ourselves. The Spirit of God is transforming our world through love and justice. It's moving, and I wonder, are we mothering its progress? To mother means, after all, to nurture and give support, to give rise to, to co-author, To care and to protect. So for our time together this morning, I thought we might consider how each of us is mothering the movement of the Holy Spirit right now. Because the Spirit is working, transforming, bringing about, even in this moment, even in this, the United Methodist denomination. So how are we giving her support? Or how are we standing in her way? Now most of you know that on Easter afternoon, of all times, I set off for a 10-day Wesleyan heritage tour. The bishop took me, along with all of the other ordinands, and a few members of the Board of Ordained Ministry in the Cabinet, to England, to the birthplace of the Methodist movement. It was an interesting and somewhat ironic time to explore and meditate on the beginnings of our Methodist faith tradition, especially when it feels like, in many ways, we are living through the death of its current expression. But the closer I got to the people and to the places that mothered this brave and spirit-led following of Christ, I realized it was the perfect time to travel back. Now, I think the only faithful way to imagine and envision our next steps as a people called Methodist is to go back and fully claim how we even got started. Because in my mind, there are these three undeniable markings of this movement, and it would behoove us all to cast our vision For a future that starts with that foundation, not this institutionally burdened and troubled amalgam called the United Methodist Church we see now. Number one, Methodism was a resistance movement that had to fight to be born from the institutions at the very beginning. They did not welcome it, they didn't sanction it, and they didn't value it. In fact, they feared it and tried actively to stop it. Now some claim, and I have to agree, that Methodism began at a kitchen table. And not just any table, but the table of Susanna Wesley. So we began our travels at the Epworth home of Samuel and Susanna Wesley, parents of John and Charles. It's an unassuming rectory, out in this working class area of a tiny, tiny village, Like, even our charter coach bus couldn't turn around on its roads now. The only reason you would go there is if you were on a Wesleyan pilgrimage. Now, back in the time that we're talking about, it was a strict household for the family. Samuel was greatly disliked as the appointed village priest. He was often traveling, or he was in debtor's prison for mismanagement of the funds. Now, on one of these trips, he was away for long enough that there was an interim pastor appointed. So the villagers, turns out, liked him even less than they liked Samuel, which is saying something. And they eventually stopped going to church. So Susanna stepped up. It was 1711. And Susanna began leading Sunday afternoon prayer gatherings in a kitchen, her kitchen. It started just for her 10 children at the time but then it grew to the servants to the servants families and then to the friends in the village all were invited now these gatherings and the fellowship they were growing to such a success that of course the powers that be wanted to shut it down now on the tour of the rectory you can sit in the kitchen and by some accounts, though they are varying, it's like preacher's numbers, some say 75 were smushed in those, uh, those days, and some say 200. Not likely. I would say about probably 60 to 75 folks were smushed in for those gatherings. But as you sit at the table, there's a couple of letters on the wall. One letter is from the interim pastor to Samuel complaining of Susanna's rogue leadership. And then you have the next one that is from Samuel to Susanna, warning her, conveying her to put an end to these prayer meetings. And then there is Susanna's response. And she writes, if you do, after all, think fit to dissolve this assembly, do not tell me that you desire me to do it. For that will not satisfy my conscience, but send me your positive command in such full and express terms as may absolve me from all guilt and punishment for neglecting this opportunity of doing good, when you and I shall appear before the great and awful tribunal of our Lord Jesus Christ. She explains in her last line When you have duly considered all these things, let me have your positive determination. <laughs> Boom. That's our legacy. That was the last word on that matter. It's important to remember that John and Charles, who were in that kitchen, were observing. They were learning church. They were five and eight years old. And it might help further to learn that these gatherings, they weren't just prayer meetings. Susanna was teaching folks how to read. She was teaching folks how to write. And she did so using the Bible. She was actively going against the customs and traditions in place to empower people with the word of God. Now she resisted from within and helped the spirit to do her holy work. So it makes sense then, right, that when we see John Wesley as Susanna's son, convicted to take the gospel out of the church and into the real world, that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Number two. Methodism's original sin, if there was one, according to the Anglican institution from which it broke off, was that it sought to include everyone in the gospel message right from the start. It was 1738 then, and John was this Anglican priest. He was trying to find his way, but truth be told, he was really failing. And he had done this missionary bomb uh, in Georgia, and had returned to England, he was totally downing himself, and when he was urged by his colleague George Whitfield to join him in open-air preaching, John was totally against it, because it was not done. It was wrong, it was sin. But he went anyway, just to see. And this is what he wrote in his journal. "In the evening, I reached Bristol. And met Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields of which George set me an example on Sunday. I had been all my life till very lately so tenacious on every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. I'll repeat, the saving of souls a sin if it not, had not been done in a church. Now just days later, after having preached to the hardworking and poor miners on Hannah Mount, who wouldn't have been allowed in these churches as they were? They were dirty. They were odorous, is a pleasant way of putting it. Now John feels differently, and this is what he writes. This is days later, and this, if you had to push me on it, I would say is an Aldersgate moment outside of the Aldersgate heartwarming moment we know. He says, I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways and glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence and a ground adjoining to the city to about three thousand people. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This practice of proclaiming the gospel out of church, it barred John from churches themselves. Now we traveled on this journey to St. Andrew's church, which had been John's father's church. John was not allowed to enter and preach from that pulpit because of his faithful actions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what to do? He went outside the church. He found his father's tomb, and he stood up on it. Crowds gathered around him, and he preached right then and there. See, Methodism wasn't meant to be kept indoors, and it certainly wasn't ever to make gatekeepers of its followers. That's a legacy. I got to stand on Samuel's grave a few weeks ago. The bishop asked each of us ordinance to climb up on it and take a moment. He's not liked by the rector of the church now. There's a pattern in our movement. Some of my colleagues, they jumped up really easily, and they struck the Wesley pose with the pointy finger. They smiled real big for the picture. And I have to admit to you that I was not so at ease. I did get up there, and I was imagining how John might have felt when he stepped up. He wanted to be, after all, inside the church behind him. Because he knew how to walk into that space, how to take a pulpit in his hands and connect the people that had self-selected to come to church. He knew how to do that. But to get up on a grave and to look at those people who were shut out and to take note that all of a sudden, you were one of them, that's not an exultant feeling. It's a scary one. So when I stepped up, I noticed that I felt pretty vulnerable to, pretty exposed. And I realized only later uh, when I saw the picture of my hands deeply held in my pockets and my head pointing down, that I mistakenly felt like I was standing up on that grave alone. John had been standing on the legacy of his father, drawing strength. I do not stand by myself either, but on a rich and solid legacy of risk takers and spirit led people. So if I feel right now in this exact moment in 2019, like I am on the outside of this institution of the UMC, then I'm in some really good company. I stand with the founders of our movement, which were always meant to be outside. Number three, Methodism wasn't hung up on right belief on an inherited and prescripted doctrine or orthodoxy. It was about the doing of the Christian faith. It was about how to practically embody this way of Jesus in the world. So the bulk of our travels was spent witnessing the places and the outposts of Methodist work. And one of those places that kind of captures it all is called the New Room. It is the oldest Methodist building in the world, and it dates back to 1739. Guess what? The first building of our movement wasn't a church at all. I'm going to say that again. The first thing that the Methodist movement constructed was not a chapel. It was a room. It was a gathering place in the center of a busy and very complicated city of Bristol. And John wrote that it was a place to help Christianity get back to its basis, basics, to be the religion of love. So in that room, what is that Christianity that is unfurling? What took place? Let me tell you. It was a school for the poor. It was a food pantry. It was a clothing distribution center. The new room provided free medical care, And it was from there that outreach to the nearby prison was organized. It was a place to meet in small groups, to pray together and to study together. And it was a place where the social gospel was proclaimed and lived out. It was in that building that John gave his speech, Thoughts Upon Slavery, which denounced all manner of slavery and its cruelties. And it's important to remember that he preached that message in the heart of the city, whose industry at the time, the greatest industry at the time, was the slave trade. John was unequivocal and demanded absolute justice with no compromises. That's our legacy. And when I was there in the new room, I noticed that the biggest source of light, it comes from the ceiling, from this kind of eight-sided tower window. It's beautiful, but it's also very different. You, You notice it. And we learned that this construction was intentional. They had to light the space. They had to light it from above because there were no windows on the first floor. The messages and the work of the Methodist people that gathered in that place were so radical that they were in constant danger. It had to be built as a sort of fortress to provide as much safety as possible. What a tremendous legacy to inherit. So how are we supporting it? How are we mothering it even still? Now I go back to that fantastical story in Acts because Paul helped along the Spirit, even when he didn't want to. God used this begrudging but faithful helper to shake free a young girl from spiritual torment and from economic oppression. These faithful acts were against Jewish custom, the civil property law, and they threatened Roman order of state. You'll recall Jesus had similar charges hurled against him. So when the institution grasped for its power back, taking the effort to silence and isolate those risk-taking nonconformists that had helped her along, the spirit burst Fourth, pushing the walls of the jail down and opening the heart of that jailer. The spirit, I firmly believe, is moving as she always has, outside of the institutions that try to control and claim her. Ours is an inherited faith tradition that resists this institutional fear and compliance when it goes against the spirit. It is a collective witness that from its start declared all worthy of its message and inclusion. And it is a movement that is always and only about doing the faith, this religion of love, even in the midst of danger and derision, especially in the midst of danger and derision. That's the way the Spirit of God has shaped our Methodist faith tradition, the one we have inherited. And now I feel responsible, convicted, and called to reclaim and rebirth that foundation in our future. Don't you? So where is the Spirit leading us now? Where might be those miners of our day? Where are they gathering the folks who are thought to be completely unworthy of entering a church edifice? What messages need to be proclaimed from our pulpits and on the graves of our ancestors? And what oppressive messages operate freely and with total support of our institutions to the economic, political, and social benefit of the few? Where are those people gathering who need to be literate in their own belovedness to God? If we are grieving the end of the United Methodist movement in our moment, surely as Easter people, we are looking towards its resurrection, towards its new life. Is it happening in a new room somewhere? Or is it happening at your own kitchen table? I wonder.